Hello again, or maybe not again, maybe just hello. This is episode one, and I'm so excited. This is the first full episode of this new podcast, Overview Effect with James Perrin. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to the introduction, episode zero. Uh, It's only about seven or so minutes long, and it just gives you a bit of background to me and the context of the podcast. I'll also ask... If you're feeling it, if you're into the podcast, uh, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening, because what that means is that that'll put it, it'll just mark it for you to listen to whenever a new episode comes out. It won't download it yet. It'll just make make sure it's there in your to-listen list. But what it does for me, as someone who's starting a new show with no momentum, uh, those subscribers give it extra platform to allow it to pop up on other people's recommended lists. So it really allows me to grow the platform when you do that. And if you're really feeling it, please give me a share on Instagram and your stories. Uh, I am at overview.effect.podcast. Cool. Now, my guest today is the antidote to the doom and gloom narrative we all hear around the environment. You know, the environment's doomed, climate change is coming, and we're all just going to fall victim to it. She is someone who has spent a lifetime, a career, fighting for and advocating for and working with environmental organizations. And she she has so much hope and optimism about the future. It is so refreshing and so uplifting. She's previously been involved with the Wilderness Society and Greenpeace. She is currently a board member at Australian Ethical and Inova Community Energy. And she's the president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, the first ever female president of the organization. And the ACF is an organization that is so very dear to my heart. And you'll hear the reason why early in our conversation. I think after this, you'll have a massive smile on your face. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this conversation with Mara Boone. Thank you, Mara. Thank you for being the first guest on the show. This is my first episode and I'm really excited to have you on board. Well, I'm a wee bit terrified, but here we are. Um, I guess uh, the show is called The Overview Effect, and the reason behind that is because it's really inspired by this concept of the overview effect, which is this experience that astronauts have when they first go up into space and they look back on Earth, and they feel this profound sense of connection with you know community and with nature and that their home is so special. You know, They, they tell these stories about how the national boundaries that we see on maps vanish away and they come back to earth really um, inspired and reconnected and more purposeful in what they want to do. And I think that to an extent, we all have experiences like that, you know, maybe not quite to the extent of being an astronaut blasting off into space, but um, we have those moments in our life where for whatever reason, something happens and we feel a pull to do something towards nature or community. So I thought we'd start off there and just ask you, have you had any of these moments? Yeah, I, I mean, the, I, I think there's something majestic that happens when a human being just finds themselves surrounded by nature. And it's, it's almost difficult to pick which experience means the most. You know, in my life as a little kid growing up, um, the Atlantic rainforest uh, in kind of the middle of Brazil, we had a little beach house and my parents had a pedal boat and we'd go out through these amazing islands and it was just these lush, you know, tropical ecosystems and, you know, seeing the little fish around the edges and just growing up in that was incredible. And then we went to California and discovered the national parks. And because dad was doing graduate work and my mother was also working at the university, we'd have these extended periods, you know, these Mm. breaks. And we'd just get in the car. And I, I must have been 
nine years old when I first just walked into Death Valley. And there's something about a desert. Mm. And just the raw colors and how when the ochres come out, they just hit you. And just the vastness and the salt and the... That was incredible. And then a month later, we drive into Yosemite. Wow. Yeah, it's <laughs> insane. And when you're a little kid and your eyes are just open to the world and you're kind of drinking it in and you don't have those filters of can and can't and yours and mine. And I mean, of course, you know, we're human and so those things are coming. But just to, for your head to be exposed to so much nature in so many different places. For me, that really began this this love affair of just the wild. Wow. And so did you know back then that you would always be working in essentially what you're doing now, you know, advocating for environment and nature? N- no. I, I. It took me a long time to start taming my mind. I had quite yeah. a full- a full-on, you know, sense of just general ambition. That's that's kind of how I felt. I was always really competitive in sport. And, you know, mom and dad were very disciplined around grades and stuff. So, so we grew up, you know, just knowing that, you know, it was really important to do well in school and sport yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I guess I always kept coming back to nature and some sense of purpose. But when I started my career, you know, a lot of my friends felt like, ew, yuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> my first step was into the world of finance. Yep. And yep. it was not, you know, at all uh, back to where I've come now. Yeah. Do you know, it's, that's, um, if I can share one of my experiences. So I was saying before we started recording that it's really quite uh, profound and, um, quite amazing that you're my first guest on the show because I had a similar experience where I went into, I guess, what society pushed me into, what was the rational choice for a career path, right? So I was 18, just finished high school and was trying to, being told I had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, which is a ridiculous situation to be put into because... Nobody knows at that age. And I was 18. I just wanted to go, you know, drinking on the weekends and partying, basically. And here I am trying to pick a university degree that's going to set up my life. Um, So I kind of got coerced by teachers and society and parents to go into engineering and chemical engineering because the rationale was because that's got good career prospects. That's what I was told, right? Right. I was not interested at all. But I went into it because it, it had good career prospects and the underlying assumption to that is that you do the degree, you get a job, you get a cushy job in a company and then you, you set up to buy the white picket fence. Right? Yeah. That's the story that we're told. Yeah. And um, so I went into that. I spent a couple of years studying that, really struggled through the first couple of years because I just I wasn't passionate and I, I didn't care and I was burnt out from school. So I, I decided I wanted to take a break. And um, for some reason, I landed this job, this student job at a at Holden, the car manufacturer, right? right. This was in Adelaide at the time. And it was a, a job where I was given, it was a 12-month contract as a student to take a year off your studies to work and gain this amazing experience before you go back and finish your studies and then they'll hire you for a career. So it was really at the age of 20, I was given this kind of opportunity, like, here's your runway, this is your roadmap that you're going to be on. And all the rational aspects of the society would tell me that that's what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> and, and to make it even more kind of influential, I come from a family that is really passionate about cars and particularly Holden. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Right? So this Dude, was a, this was a big thing. This was a big thing. Like my dad and my uncle, they raced yeah. Holdens and all that sort of stuff. And so yeah. I was being told this is the best thing that could ever happen to me. Yeah. And six months in, and I just hated it. I remember going to work, walking into this office, and um, my job, I was a student, so I didn't really contribute that much, but my job was to, um, uh, I was involved in supporting the, fixing the defects on the cars through the manufacturing process. So cars Mm -hmm. that would get made and would have little dings and scratches, I was trying to remedy that, those issues, right? Right. And I just thought, what am I doing here? This is just not, doesn't 
drive me. It doesn't motivate me. Yeah. And then my wife got a job, or my girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, got a job. She was also studying, as a, and she got a job as a fundraiser for a fundraising organisation, which at the time was fundraising for the Australian Conservation Foundation. Oh, really? And I went and picked her up one evening from the office. Yeah. And I walked into this office and I just left my kind of dull, dreary engineering office and I walked into this fundraising office and I was – it was like that moment in The Wizard of Oz, I think it is, where it turns from black and white to colour. Right. (laughs) And it was like beautiful – Wow, you can work to do things for nature. Totally, totally. It was beautiful infographics and photos on the wall and this kind of quirky, eclectic – mix of backpackers and Mm. urban grunge, you know, musicians who are just trying to raise funds for an environmental organisation. And after half an hour to an hour sitting down and chatting with them and seeing that kind of spark in their eyes, I just thought, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be advocating for nature and environment. I'm not supposed to be fixing defects on cars. So the very next day I quit the, the Holden job and on the Monday, I started fundraising on behalf of the Australian Conservation <laughs> Foundation. And that started me on this path of environment and nature and, in a broader sense, advocacy and engagement because my job was now to stop people in their day-to-day lives on the street, tell them about the ACF and, you know, I'm nature. I'm so happy to hear this story, you know, <laughs> because we've all had that experience of ducking in the street when some crazy person with a world vision Mm. t-shirt is about to you know and you can just partly you think oh 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 i'm so embarrassed of course it's a wonderful organization i want to give but like i'm I'm going to check my phone right now to not make eye contact and yet the motivation and the purpose behind the people that do that kind of work is is actually genuine and what they have managed to do to bring resources to the community sector and especially that model where um, it's unclear whether it's viable into the future, but for at least 10, 15 years, the monthly donations that you know have come from that sort of street fundraising have sustained incredibly important work. Mm. And it's around uh, conservation, human rights, overseas aid. So much of our community sector has literally been through bumping into people on the street And it's fantastic because, you know, clearly your career has continued to morph, as has mine. Mm. So it's not like you make a choice and you contribute to the fabric of something important and then somehow that means you no longer have other choices or that the other choices that you make don't weave back in to some of those, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, look, it's, a, it's an amazing turn of events for me to reflect back and go, okay, now here I am launching a podcast, which is still on the, this, this um, pathway of advocacy and advocating for nature. And my first guest is the president of the Yay! Australian Conservation <laughs> Foundation. <laughs> and, and, and look, I mean, I, I just, it, it is such an honor to be involved with the ACF at this moment in time. And the organization, you know, it's, it, it has generational commitment. We have some families that have been with us for, you know, more than 50 years. Mm. And the grandparents care, the kids care, the grandkids care, the little ones that are coming in care. And I think everyone understands the moment is just critical. Yeah. Because there's so much at stake given the model we've chosen as humans to have so far. Mm. And back to that overview effect, if one looked down 50 years ago compared to now, and through that spatial lens that we now have with the satellites to go not just to, you know, I think they can measure into the soil levels of carbon from the satellites. They can measure the density of leaves, and there's just so much you can know. What would be revealed... It's just a huge catastrophe. We have crunched as humans through too much nature. (laughs) It's that simple. And it's not our prosperity that's that's on, on the line. There are so many ways for us to be prosperous. We just need to understand that that way 
is not going to work for that beautiful biosphere that actually enables us as humans to thrive. So I'm delighted to be here with you and to reconnect at this stage in your life about something we care about so much. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, I guess before we go a little bit further into the ACF and some of the stuff that you're doing with them, I'd actually like to reflect on some of the other stuff that you've done before you landed with the ACF. And in particular, I was reading about how you've had experience rebuilding a community in Nepal after an earthquake. Is that right? It was such a journey and a wonderful reminder of, you know, we create circumstances, but then we also, you know, find ourselves, uh, you know, in just the most incredible coincidences that, you know, occur. Um, So I uh, studied political economy and uh, did enough economics to, you know, get a foot in the door in Wall Street. And I went to a really special, very small university called Williams College on the East Coast of the U.S., uh, which was, was a marvelous experience and gave me this kind of access to this, this world of finance insofar as the recruiters would come, you know. So I found myself at uh, a big investment bank called Morgan Stanley and uh, working in their mergers and acquisitions department in the mid-80s. So picture that movie, Wall Street. Yeah. (laughs) Gordon Gecko. Big shoulder pads, big hair, which I have. It was a moment for big hair women. That was great. (laughs) Uh, And and just an unbelievable amount of um, money being made and activity in, you know, how businesses were combining, selling and so forth. And and then I went from Morgan Stanley's M&A department, um, ended up in San Francisco in their technology group and really, really loved that because that was like, you know, the period when Apple went public. So it was this iconic capital formation and high technology in Silicon Valley that has really set the groundwork in terms of understanding how the learning curve works, how venture capital works and so forth. And and I really, really loved all of that. But after close to five years, you know, I applied to business school. I was just totally exhausted. And I said, give me a year off. I want to volunteer. I want to do something. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but in the same way as my mother and I had fallen in love with, you know, ocean ecosystems and, and redwoods especially and, you know, the Sierras in, in California – she took a sabbatical into the Himalayas. And I was still in high school. She went by herself for three months. And, you know, as kids and dad, we kind of uh, just just waited. Um, (laughs) And, ah, she walked the Annapurna Trail and the Everest Trail and her, her experiences were just so marvelous. So I just knew I had to experience, I was very close to my mother, I knew I had to experience that. And um, I traveled a little bit and I got there. And the day after I got there, there was this earthquake in Kathmandu and I was in it. Wow. It was like, you know, I was staying in the Kathmandu guest house, which is this iconic spot, you know, in the middle of the backpacker area. And we all kind of woke up and realized it was big and went outside into the courtyard and it was especially big in the western districts of Nepal and I thought I was going to work on you know volunteer on public health I had done that in high school and thought that would that would be interesting and I was was and am a massive Grateful Dead fan yes massive something like 72 concerts wow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the, the the dead supported this foundation called SIVA, which was um, the equivalent of what Fred Hollows does, you know, the cataract surgery that is just so, so life-changing and um, for so many Nepalis that would trek in forever and then they'd get, you know, and it was amazing, amazing charity. But I ended up meeting uh, a wonderful Nepali family, um, including one brother was leading the World Bank uh, mission in Nepal and the other was... Um, just an amazing planner who had a PhD from the USM planning, and he became the head of the Earthquake Reconstruction Authority. And and I literally met him at dinner, and he said, so what are you doing here? And I said, well, I, I, I have to do something to have a visa, and I really just want to contribute and experience what it's like to be here before I go back to business school and figure out, you know, what's next in my life. And he said, great, you are going to be our operations consultant 
And so he engaged, I was one of the first hires in the Reconstruction Authority, and he, he basically gave me a visa and put me on a Nepali salary, which was something like, you know, 40 cents a day, which was fine, because <laughs> I had saved money on Wall Street. I was ready to, yeah. you know, just... It was the most extraordinary thing, because this man, Madhav Matema is his name, and he pulled these just extraordinary thinkers together, and... We, we thought deeply about the fact that we were rebuilding 2,000 schools and there was just hundreds of thousands of homes and that it is such an earthquake-proof, um, vulnerable area. Mm. And the idea of resilience was really kind of, in the back of my mind, I understood how important it was that we were taking the time to do very grassrootsy understanding of how you communicate on the ground in villages where people build from stones, that if you have equidistant windows, if you have trusses that, you know, sit in specific areas, if you do something to tie your roof on, then you are less likely to die. And the next time the earthquake comes it's less likely to knock your entire village. And wow. then to step back and say, there are these technologies like smokeless stoves. How do we deal with the fact that, you know, most people die in the villages of the west of Kathmandu because they're just breathing in so mm. much smoke in the ice, but also in summer because it's just the technology wasn't there. And yet it was so possible to have very affordable innovation that had huge public health. So we introduced smokeless stoves, and then we had composting latrines, where we started to realize there were so many games that could be changed by addressing those underlying stresses of public health and construction and so forth. So it was a wonderful, wonderful project. And it was so great that I ended up getting a second year extension to business school, you know, to do that. But yeah, it was it was really a wonderful experience. Wow. I'm so I cannot tell you how, how innovative Nepalis are. It's just such an impressive culture, sandwiched between China and, and India. And, you know, what can you do? <laughs> and what they've done in microenergy, what they've done with small-scale hydro and, you know, solar-connected, and it's just game-changing. Wow. And so when you were there and you were working on that project and you were working with those communities was there a sense of, I mean, obviously a, an earthquake like that brings horrific destruction, but was there a sense of there's actually an opportunity to rebuild better? For sure. Yeah. For sure. And, and not only in the physical form, mm. in the mindset form, understanding yep. that, you know, a bit like today, I think we just need to understand that a planet, a country, a region cannot go through drought and then bushfire and then flood and then pandemic and then cyber shocks and then market access shocks mm. without understanding the 21st century is a period of shocks, multiple shocks on top of each other. Yeah. So the mindset one needs to retain optimism and realize every time you can rebuild your business model a community can replenish its confidence. It's the social capital that allows that to happen. You know, you, you're totally right. It feels like in the last nine months, we've had how many once-in-a-lifetime events? One of the worst droughts we've seen in, on Western record, the horrific bushfires, and, and social once-in-a-lifetime social events too, the biggest ever student protest, global student protest, the pandemic, and out of the pandemic came one of the biggest global movements ever with the Black Lives Matter And movement. don't forget about Greta in that mix, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the young people are on fire. Totally. And so it just feels like the world is, is now is, is primed and ready for change. Yeah. And trying to retrofit, say if none of those shocks happened and we were just trying to retrofit the existing model, it, it would be really hard. But we've had this all of this, these disruptions and these changes that maybe just like that earthquake in Nepal presents us with a real opportunity to rebuild because we've got to rebuild anyway. 
So how do we rebuild? Well, and, 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 and let's not forget the underlying drivers of some of those shocks and the dependencies between them. And for me at this stage, it's, it's the twin challenge of restoring nature on the one hand and climate repair on the other. And the two go hand in hand because there's no point creating a new national park. There just is no point unless we are going to address the underlying climatic conditions in which nature thrives in that particular area. Because for decades, the ACF has created magnificent national parks, from the Great Barrier Reef to the Dane Tree to all of the you know, wonders that we all enjoy, Lamington, Springbrook, all of them. They, there's been a movement of nature lovers that have helped to bring that out of the ground, going back to the Great Depression. You know, the mm. incredible New South Wales you know, stories that go back to those. And yet, even with great you know, management systems, and of course, not enough funding uh, is, is there, uh, and, and we see the extinction challenge is real because we're just not investing and protecting and cultivating those ecosystems. It's not enough to just put a boundary on a map, but the warming makes it redundant. Some of the species that were at risk, they thought, 2025, 2030, 2050, in the wet tropics of Queensland, the scientists doing surveys on the ground are realizing, oh my goodness, we're actually close to there now. The heat has come up the mountains and species only live in certain temperature zones and then they have nowhere to go. And so with that sort of a mindset, it just feels really obvious to me that we have this magnificent opportunity as human beings, especially because of technology, because I have not lost the tech geek in me. <laughs> I love being from Silicon Valley. You know, like my father went to Stanford. He did, his degree was in computer science and advanced systems, which back in the 70s, it's just hilarious. You know, I look at my iPhone and the lab that he was working with, <laughs> you know, it was, it was like, you know, the size of my entire home. And that is now in my phone. And soon it will be in nano and it will probably be implanted somewhere. And, mm. you know, we can leverage all of that to address these twin challenges of restoring nature and repairing the climate. And, and once we do, we're going to just be so happy for it. <laughs> Because I have met anyone, I have not met anyone who does not love a pristine beach, a beautiful rainforest, being in a river that's thriving with fish. Mm. Like it just doesn't exist, right? We love this stuff. Of course, of course. And those are the, you know, that's what I, going back to my fundraising days, those are the stories that I would tell that would engage people. You know, you, Mm. you try different pitches, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the things that would would connect people up is that you know what are those amazing beaches? What are those amazing rivers? What are, you know? What are yeah. those amazing elements of nature that you've interacted with that you care about? And I feel like that's that's the those are the stories that we need to be telling. You know, not here's a boundary that we've created or here's a number we're we trying to hit. We cannot change the world unless we change the story. We cannot. And the world is so quick to change when the story changes. That's why ACF's theory of change is just so powerful. And and not only ACF. You know, I think environmentalists have understood that we need to be inclusive. We need to empower different parts of the community to share their their love of nature. Their not not just yes, we have to call out the importance of the moment. And and it is. <laughs> If you look at the amount of warming mm. built into the climate models, we can't deny that it is a really critical point right now. But it's also appealing to this this very evocative and wonderful aspiration uh, for us to bring back that which helps us as a species to thrive. So, But look, you know, the chapters in my life that got back to this space, they have been so diverse they have been so diverse, and I think the ability to feel optimism about what can be done partly comes from 
having this joyful career that's just reached across, you know, investment banking, the world of research, the community sector in quite a deep way, um, sport, you know, all these different things. And then you kind of realize how possible it is to make change happen because all of those things are necessary for us to change the story together and then put in place. What is that new model? I mean, if we snap back to where we were before, it is a pathway to just nothing we want our kids to imagine, right? Like, why would we do that when abundance is around the corner? So how do we, how do we then take this moment and change what are the what are the things we need to do well, as a society I, I, for, you know there there are many pathways and um i i think you know let many flowers bloom because there are those who will explore the very localized models there are others that will explore the scalable models and you know many of those things are possible i am um i'm spending a few days a week now working with a group of colleagues that you know are, are like family and it's a cooperative research center that's dedicated to the future of food. Um, it's called food agility for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because, again, coming back to this notion of exponential change and the pace of change and, you know, what, what it feels like to come from a place like Silicon Valley where things like the iPhone come out of nowhere and then change the way our necks are shaped, I reckon, mm. for the next yes. generation, right? And it all happens in five or 10 years. And people think, oh, it's just always been like this. But no, when I was your age, it was not like this. We had phones. <laughs> but just as one small example, and then also understanding that we live in this world where care of the first generation of connectivity through the internet, which really comes back on, 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 on the back of previous communication revolutions, you know, radio, television, all of those things. But the internet really was game-changing. And then this internet of things transition, where we now have the device economy. And the internet of things, it takes us into healthcare, into construction, into, it's not just, you know, gaming and Mm. apps and so forth. It's the real world where data is being collected. And it's not just being collected in one place. It comes from the satellites that NASA put up in space 10, 15 years ago. It comes from the drones that are getting a very, very different level of performance and economics. It comes from the sensors that once cost thousands of dollars, but now, uh, you know, there's new generations that are very powerful and self-calibrating and can even be installed without technical work. And what do they measure? They measure the physical world. That data... I think the statistic, which is kind of crazy to think about, you know, in the next six months, we will learn more about the human mind than in the history of knowledge. What? About the human mind. And in the six months after that, we'll double it. Wow. That's exponential thinking. Mm. Okay. And we're learning about that with COVID, aren't we? (laughs) where we go, oh, wow, I get it. One person can infect 14 or 12 or whatever it is. And then if you've got 12, they can infect and they can. The opposite in the public interest and the good side is true. Mm. There's something in solar PV called the Swanson effect after the founder of solar PV. Every time you double the capacity, you reduce the cost by 20%. So here in this valley, I put solar on in 2008. And it cost me six times what my neighbors put on last year. And their kit is even better. Wow. And we look at what's going to happen to batteries and we look at what's going to happen. So in my mind, understanding that we can leverage data, we can leverage technology to support business models that are unbelievably human-centered. And we can do this by designing around people and animals and nature and the needs of people, animals, and nature. And I see the most exciting business models coming out of the ground. I really do. I, you know, at Food Agility, for example, where, well, there's a million projects, but some are measuring the water productivity of community gardening technology, for example. Like if we get that right, then it means our cities, and there's some that are expected to grow to 50 million people 
in the next 20 years. Get your head wow. around that. If you can make it possible for people to grow food in urban and peri-urban areas by incredibly good water productivity, then suddenly this terrifying statistic of water security, water shortages that's just looming around the corner becomes more manageable. If you think about the jobs and the entrepreneurship and the wonderful opportunities for young people to be part of circular local food economies, not just in Byron, yeah. you know, like in Lagos, in Sao Paulo, where I'm from, like, let's be optimistic that all these things are possible. And, and probably the most, the thing that keeps me awake with joy, right, not awake with terror, is the knowledge that we can restore nature, and when we do, thriving regional communities will come out of the ground. Advanced manufacturing will come out of the ground. We will have landscapes where nature thrives around food production. There will be a time when farmers realize they can make as much money by literally growing, planting biodiversity and rich ecosystems. Why? Because the world is going to value it. And this might be controversial, and I get it. You know, in, in many of the circles that I walk, when I talk about things like natural capital and valuing nature, people freak out and go, <laughs> it's just that I understand markets, right? And yeah. I, I'm excited because I think it can be scaled, Think about it. It's like Ross Garner's vision. We can be a superpower because we have land and we can restore that land and that restoration will be an important part of what keeps the climate safe. And so people will have a financial interest in supporting that restoration. And what we need to do now is be incredibly clever about creating the business models and the collaboration and the positive version of aspiring to that kind of work instead of the, you know, usual fights between farmers and greenies and yep. bankers and consumer folk and, you know, like, and that's why I'm so happy that I've walked all these different paths because <laughs> I love talking to all of them. Yeah, yeah. So, so how does then... This, this new model and this, these emerging businesses and technologies that are going to help us you know, live more regeneratively and more connected, how does that defer to, I guess, this, this old model? There's this tension, right, between the existing model and the existing corporations and what we're kind of being sold. I mean, even look at, um, even look at the COVID commission and what we're being told from, from that group. Yeah. Of it's going to be a gas-led recovery, at, you know, yeah. being told by a guy who runs a gas company, like, surprise, surprise. Yeah. How, do, how do we navigate that? Because there is this sense of, I guess, pressure to snap back to the old way. Yeah. And, and sure. we need to go back the, to the way things were and we need to all get our jobs back and whatever it is. How do we... I guess, bravely step through that and see through that to what you're talking about. Well, you know, we live in a time where the contest of ideas really matters because we're uh, just surrounded by technology stories, Netflix, mm. blogs, podcasts, right? Like we're talking to each other at exponential depth now because a lot of us can't leave home <laughs> in parts of the world and hear... Sadly, in Victoria, you know, now very, very difficult circumstances. So it's a time of understanding that, um, first of all, it's not going to be one thing. What you might hear from some people is it's one thing and it's my thing and this is the thing. But those people, they have an interest in telling that story, right? Mm. What I see around me is unbelievable imagination. So I was, you know, sharing with you how. Here I, I open my home to Airbnb for very special experiences. And when I do, it's, it's a complete circular model. Everyone participates. You know, it's the local beer, the local wine, the local bread, the local cleaner, the local, you know, the person that's helping me with the acreage. And those models, they are scalable. And sure, you might think Airbnb is an evil company that, you know, is like full of like profit and sure, 
if you think profit is evil right now, I don't think they're making much of it, so don't worry. <laughs> but yes, we have the Ubers and the Airbnbs, and there are questions about equity and sharing the wealth, but there certainly uh, is a just proliferation of bottom-up business models that are coming good. So also, there are care of really good public policy. We don't see much of that in Australia these days. Thank goodness, you know, we're experiencing a very good, you know, uh, collaboration model and a COVID response, which gives us great hope that maybe ideology, you know, takes a back seat and evidence and collaboration goes forward. Let's be positive. We've all but, seen those uh, footage from, you know, speaker time and it's just, we just shake our head. Like, it's, it, like, just, it's uh, just so crazy, right? And um, so... Partly, I like models where we don't rely on government. Mm. And partly, I like models where we just focus on good policy. We need to do both. And when we see, you know, the crazy, let's build pipelines from WA with gas because it's cheaper there. For starters, there will be a war within the gas industry because guess what? There's another gas industry on the East Coast and it knows it's more expensive. And it doesn't want taxpayer dollars to subsidize a pipeline for the competitors on the West Coast to get access. Let's let them go to war because what's happening in the background is care of the really the German government. We must give great thanks to the German government. Who would have thought after the horrors of World War II, who would have thought that, you know, somehow around the late 80s and early 90s, they understood the importance of introducing an aggressive feed-in tariff on solar in a country that has very little sun yeah. compared to ours. Yeah. And then what happens? Well, companies start manufacturing panels because there's money to be made. Consumers start getting solar because there's a big, fat subsidy. That policy gets adopted by Greece and by Spain. Suddenly, there's enough European demand that the Chinese start manufacturing. Suddenly, that curve that we talked about, driven by technology and manufacturing and the learning curve, starts to kick off. And what used to cost $20,000 cost $10,000, $5,000, $3,000. It's happening now to batteries. We're seeing feed-in tariffs of batteries. Yes, we're going to go through a very difficult economic transition, but this question of what energy powers our future, for those that don't quite get the climate models, and we can have a conversation about that, they will get the marginal cost. <laughs> and the marginal cost is just much more promising in the land of renewables, both at scale and at that household micro level. And mm. so that contest is actually of economics as much as anything. So, you know, it's true. It's tragic that we would have crazy people in a commission that are trying to bring back something which is so patently self-interested for a couple handful of companies that are going to pay royalties that are not sustainable because guess what? We are going to have to track to net zero. And it could be faster than we thought, because if the feedback loops of the bushfires of California, Australia, Europe keep coming back, we're going to pump into the atmosphere yeah. more than we drop down. And so those assets are all at risk. And the most joyful thing, this is embarrassing, this is embarrassing, but for everyone that's depressed about climate action, I encourage you to do what I do every once in a while, you know, when you're in like a super boring meeting and you've got like Chrome opened in the background, <laughs> just Google share price, Woodside Energy, mm. share price, Exxon, share price, Origin, and you just watch what shareholder value has done over the last five years. Yeah. And then you think about the, the, the businesses of the future where shareholder value is growing and there is a completely different narrative, right? Yes. So it is a time full of optimism. We have to create these business models because technology actually is on our side. Yeah. And by the way, it, it's not like big is bad. If we didn't have a big Google, then we wouldn't be able to Google every time you think you've got brain cancer and you realize you don't because you found WebMD and all the research <laughs> at your fingerprints, right? It's like, because it's big, it has these benefits. Of it. But you, yes, we have to control where, how that wealth is shared and access to you know markets for innovation, yes. But it is exciting that we can achieve this kind of scale. Mm. 
So what I'm really hearing is that instead of getting, I guess, angry or stamping our feet and pointing the blame at the the Woodsides or the, you know, the commission or the big bad guys, just let them do their thing because what's really happening is this groundswell of connectivity, Absolutely. innovation, new businesses, localization, entrepreneurship, all of that all this is new happening. Opportunity, and, and that's going to take and over. And if you're listening to this and you are from that community sector and you feel like business is bad, and I get that, I don't share that view because I've seen so much good come from business, but uncontrolled, without rules. Really bad things can happen. I'm acknowledging that. Read Paul Hawkins, the Blessed unrest. I was just lucky enough to be in the auditorium at QUT, you know, 12 years ago when he came to tour that book. And it's just marvelous because in it, he basically documents how 30% of the world's economy is the community sector, 30%. And he puts up on a screen millions of nonprofits some huge, some tiny, some growing, some flatlining, doesn't matter. It is one of the most robust, exciting, rapidly changing sectors from which human prosperity comes, great creativity, amazing things for the commons, whether it is human rights or development or or the environment. So, you know, that's not in the story, right? Right. The story is, oh my God, we need jobs. It's all about Qantas. We need jobs. It's all about gas. We need jobs. No, (laughs) it is all about us and what we choose to do. That's what it's about. Right. Amazing. So I guess how do we translate that to someone who's listening who on an individual level, you know, that goes, okay, well, that all sounds beautiful and that's what I want to call into existence what do I do? Like, is that, where do I shop? Where do I, what do I do with, how do I invest my super? Like, are those the sorts of questions that they need to be asking? Now you're going to turn me into a (laughs) self-promoting. Well, look, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a case study of, of that. And of course, everyone should put their super with Australian ethical investments, (laughs) right? Because I'm on the board and I would say that, but, but let me step back just as an example of what is coming out of the ground, because I could say the same about stone and wood. I could Mm. say about so many different wonderful things that are coming out of the ground. So when I first came to Australia, it would have been like the late 80s. And um, 1989, I first got off a plane and immediately left. It was very funny. I had a round-the-world ticket, and um, I had a stop in Sydney. And I remember talking to all these friends in San Francisco going, oh, God, when I can go to, like, Thailand and Indonesia and, you know, like Ladakh and, you know, land in Kathmandu, why would I go to Australia where they're all, like, really racist and sexist? Mm-hmm. That's the impression I had back then, right? And so I just wasn't interested. I was, But then the world changed. I ended up meeting an Aussie and came back. And, you know, all, all of that kind of happened. Now I forgot. Why were we down this track? Well, I was asking you, what can someone on an individual level Thank you very much. Oh, my God, the brain reconnects. (laughs) So very early on, when when, when I came back, I think it was around 1990, and I was volunteering at the Wilderness Society, and there was a lovely guy there, Ross Knowles, who was the wilderness campaigner, and he was starting an ethical advisory firm, a financial advice firm, uh, on the back of his father's license, and he got licensed, and and he's like, okay, well, let's let's start doing some marketing to like wilderness society members and others, and what can they invest in? And we put this little booklet together, and Ross had done a lot of research, and I helped him a little bit more. And we were finding back then companies like Lendlease, who had a founder who was a visionary around equity and working with unions and others. And there were some really interesting case studies, but there was this tiny little thing called the August Investment Trust, and it was a bunch of hippies that you know it was like a forest you know, fund where they were growing plantations to like stop logging of native forests. And that morphed and morphed and morphed and ended up becoming Australian Ethical and then opened a super fund and then has many managed funds. And I got on the board in 2013. And it was wonderful because, you know, when I was chief financial officer at Greenpeace, we had gone back to Australian Ethical. There's many in the nonprofit. ACF has its super with, with Australian Ethical. And to watch that exponential shift mm. in what's happening with our understanding of investing in positive ways 
track the funds under management and to watch the investment performance. Whereas once people thought, well, I have a good heart. I want to do the ethical thing, so I'm prepared to have a lower return. The story now goes like this. I have a good heart and a great brain, and I see where the future is coming. So I'm investing in those things that have a positive future, not so much the ones that are going to get stranded and guess where the returns are. If you look at where the ethical funds have been, it is incredible. And it's not just over six months or one year. Some, we have some funds that have a 20-year track record that's very impressive. So you can find those options. Mm. You can find them in food. You can find them in construction. You can find them in, in just about everything. And then the question of like what you do, not just what you shop, right, yeah. is, is like super important. And we are going into this very, very, very difficult period. And, you know, one, one bit of advice is go to uni. <laughs> if you're young and you're terrified, you know, study, get more skills. But realize that your, your, your career is going to be reinvented a million times. Because that little anecdote about knowledge and data on the brain is true about everything. And we go quickly to this thing about, um, you know, learn about STEM, Mm. science, technology, engineering, maths, like you, get skills that matter because of the world. But the humanities and the ability to communicate and the ability to collaborate is going to be just as important, if not more. AI requires understanding human behavior. Business models that rely on technology understand human behavior. And that thing of the blessed unrest in the community sector, amplify that with technology. Realize Mm. that you can start this podcast and it might have 5 million listeners in five years around the world in 20 languages. Well, that'd be great. You see? (laughs) (laughs) Now, that wasn't possible, right? But now you can get simultaneous translation. You can buy platforms around the world. You can, you know, get content that's tailored and culture and blah, blah, blah. And we we don't need to think about inventing something huge. Take the first step. Yes. Validate it. If it's not working, switch tack. The Agile way is going to be the way for this new generation. And it's a, a super exciting time for that. It totally is. You know, there's the, the theme of a lot of the things we've, we've spoken about is like your career path doesn't have to be what you're sold, which is, you know, go and be a financial stockbroker in New York and that's your career path. You can actually choose differently. Yeah. You can step out of that. You don't have to go and go have a, a, a long career with a big organization and have the white picket fence. You can step out of that. As a shopper, you can. Th- there are all these amazing new organizations and businesses that are local and ethical and actually providing better quality service Absolutely. anyway. Absolutely. Abs- and, you know, for some people, big business can be a big employer. You know, the secret in Australia is the mining sector has, has convinced us that they're all about jobs and there's very few. Mm. But the finance sector, other sectors, property sector are very high em- employing sectors. And it's been amazing to see the wonderful impact that internal advocates in big companies are having towards the good. The fact that we have these sustainable development goals and we have a global compact and lots of big businesses have signed up to things like poverty alleviation, climate change, waste reduction, they now have a a roadmap and shareholders are noticing that. Shareholders are creating initiatives. World Bank leadership is mattering. Mm. The, The reserve banks around the world are coming together saying, guys, if we don't get this right, 25% of our economy is gone at the end of the century. So within those big companies, I'm finding it marvelous. I'm mentoring a couple of people that are in those roles in big companies, and it's incredible the impact that they're having. I reckon one of the most important things to be doing right now is if you're in technology where so much of the wealth is, Right. If you go to the New York Stock Exchange 20 years ago versus now, used to be oil companies, now tech companies. They're the big companies. Look at what happens when the staff of Amazon, Microsoft, Netflix, Apple decide they care about climate change. Right? Yeah. These are like people with elite skills. And they're saying, uh-uh, I'm not going to work here unless you track 
not just to net zero. Microsoft has the world's leading climate strategy. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's insane. They have quantified the life cycle emissions of all of their products, not just like the cloud, which is very intensive energy mm-hmm. from cloud computing. When you buy a Surface tablet, they understand it lives for X years. It uses this average power. They've quantified all of that. They are going to not just offset that, but draw down going back to when the company was founded in 1970 wow. or whatever it was. Yeah, wow. Back to when Bill Gates first dropped out and started that. They've understood there's a business model around being net positive. Yep. They're not interested in the dorky conversation about 2030 and whether it should be 28% or 45%. Like, yes, that's critical. Yes, that's important. It's got to be 200%. Atlassian's right. We can, it, it, Mike Cannonbrooks is right. We can export the sun to Singapore. I'm here to tell you we can export nature. Not in the sense that people are going to buy our trees, in the sense that people are going to pay us to have forests and nature and biodiversity because it matters for the planet's well-being. Yep. Right? Totally. And And it's the young people in those big companies. And it's the same young people in Rio Tinto, in BHP, that are saying, take responsibility for scope three emissions, make green steel a possibility, And then we can feel good about coming home and saying, I work at this company. And so that's that's the true power, right, is people realizing that they hold that influence, even as a quote unquote cog in the wheel. You're not. You have critical influence where you put your money, where you shop, where you work, where you work, how you live, all those things. How can we not be optimistic? It's a very different conversation we're having, right, to the one about there's a task force. Yes. We're going to snap back. We're going to have another massive gas industry that we have to then shut down in 10 years when we're all frying bushfire after bushfire after bushfire. No. Yep. We don't need that. And the doom and gloom story that we're also told around, well, almost like nature's screwed and it's inevitable, so let's do what makes us money. It's like shut down that story and talk about this story. What, what, you know, <laughs> I had a group of people, you know, we, we're, we're designing a really th- amazing uh, innovation, a big, big circular land fund where investors can fund restoration at scale. And the most exciting thing in the last session we had designing that was, you know, we have in Australia a, a, a really interesting R&D system around farming and food. It's called the Rural R&D Corporation. People, you know, farmers pay levies. They, they get uh, combined together to invest in research. And that's done our agriculture incredibly well over 25 years. You know, we have boosted our productivity. We don't have the subsidies the Europeans and North Americans have. And so we have to be very good because we're also exposed, not just to the weather, but currency, you know, many, many things, trade wars. And so these RDCs have... have done a lot for practices, varieties, you know, innovation, they are now kind of rejuvenating themselves for the next 25 years. And I had a fellow, you know, sitting where you are, who's quite influential in that system. And he said, the number one theme for collaborating across all those huge research groups is sustainability in our farming systems. Wow. Like we have so much to look forward to. Yes, there are people doing the wrong thing. We have to stop the land clearing. We just have to. We, and, and we have to find other ways for all the different farming systems to work. But the value that will be unlocked when we do, when we work out how much demand there is for that, not just here, but for, you know, what is sequestered that the world needs to draw down is just so exciting. Amazing. Mara, I think we're going to have to rein it in there. But what a beautiful place to finish on, this beautiful optimistic place of this is what we have to look forward to. Coming out of all of these global disruptions that we've had, this is a a really pivotal moment in time and we have all of this amazing opportunity at our fingertips. Look, we do. And if I can leave you with one thought that's made a big difference 
in in my thinking, you know, influenced by so many people whose whose incredible ideas, you know, have shaped um, how how the world is changing. Let's stop planning quite so much and let's start experimenting. And let's bring those experiments down to enterprise, to how we live, to how our cities and regions grow. And we will find when we experiment that the ones that fail are not worth doing. (laughs) So instead of snapping back, we'll snap, snap into this world of scaling quickly because we are de risking these new models. We're taking a step here. If it doesn't work, we go there. If that works, we take four steps there. And then we go somewhere else. Mm. That's the world the new generation gets to create. Just got to take that first step. Yep. (laughs) Beautiful. I feel like we could talk for hours and maybe we will do it again sometime in the future. Well, I wish you all the best. It's wonderful (laughs) you're doing this. And um, yeah, look forward to all the conversations you're going to have. Thank you so much. (laughs) Awesome. Cool. Thank you. We forgot, but it's one o'clock. Yeah.